joy to be gathered to the Lord and uh, what a privilege to have the word of God among his people and to also set aside the whole day to worship God and to come to him in this manner. It is a privilege. I pray that in our lifetime, this privilege will not be taken away from us, that we can serve God acceptably, freely, anytime, any day. Amen. Um, beginning a new series, the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, so, for, the, for ten evenings, we that are preaching here will be looking at the Ten Commandments and their, their relevance, and also Christian relationship to the Ten Commandments. So that's what we'll be doing uh, for the next 10 evenings or 11 evenings. Today, I will not touch on the Ten Commandments, but to give you a general idea about Christian relationship to the Ten Commandments. Are we to keep the Ten Commandments or not? Uh, this is the idea that I'll be working my way through this evening and then see uh, to come back next week or the upper week and begin to look at the first commandments and then, and then, and then, and then, and then. But then there are some couples of scriptures I want us to read and then uh, I will say the few things that the Lord has laid upon my heart and then uh, we'll be going home to rest. I'll read Exodus chapter 20. And I'll read Romans chapter 7, verse 1 to 6, or the whole of Romans chapter 7. Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. Remember, my sound is echoing. It's just, it looks so light and flaky. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of a house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servants, or your female servants, or your livestock, 
or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord bless the Sabbath day and make it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Verse 13. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. The people stood afar off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Amen. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. I might read the entire chapter or substantially, then I'll break off, but I will stay between chapter 4, maybe chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 6. Romans chapter 7. The subject, the uninspired subscript, you will see there is in your ESV is what? Let me hear your answer. If you have headings in your Bible, what do you see? How many of you hold King James? Finally. Okay. Any other thing? Any other headings? Okay. Mrs. Hodolphin, I hope your husband is fine. It's missing. Okay. I want to be I want to be sure he's it's not uh, under any captivity. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on the person only as long as he lives, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But... If her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that you may bear 
fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness or concupiscence. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do that which is right or what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I will do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, illuminate our mind and breathe upon your word. Your word is truth. Lord, I pray that you bless myself and my hearers tonight. 
that we go benefiting from the Holy Writ. Lord, dethrone our doubts and, and our fight against truth and that we may understand the clarity that your word brings to us for our benefits and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Are we to keep the Ten Commandments, or the commandment of God, now that we live under grace? Well, that is the dividing line in within the among the Protestant uh, uh, within protest, Protestant evangelicalism, the idea that what is a Christian relationship to the law, what is the church relationship to the law, and precisely the Ten Commandments and all the law for the law of Moses. Now that Christ has come, and we are now free from the law. It is my personal conviction, and I think more than half of the parishioners here and a lot of commentators that, uh, that worth their onions is our conviction that Christians are to obey the law of God. Sometimes the question is, the questions are modular. Like when you phrase the question as to are we under the law? That's a different category altogether. Are Christians under the law? The answer is no. We are not under the law. We are under the grace that it has come to us through our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But are we to keep the law? The answer is what? Yes. And then you can also go further. Keeping the law for what? For what effect? Are we to keep the law so that we can be saved? The answer is what? No. But, yeah. So, in our justification, we do not have to tick the Ten Commandments and say, okay, Lord, I have kept the Ten Commandments. Where's my card? Where's my justification? And the was like, well, and your Marcos, look at it. Has it kept? Since he has kept, okay, justified. That's not what happened. We are justified on the basis of the work that has been worked in Christ Jesus. It is on the basis of the death of Christ. It is on the basis of the obedience of Christ to the law, to the entirety of the law, and his death on the cross and resurrection that we stand justified by God. So let me give you a little bit of, of the idea behind the law of Moses. How many of you know that the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the law came into being when Israel were coming back from Egypt to Canaan? How many of you believe that that, that was that the truth? Because the law came in the wilderness. But before the wilderness, people lived, two of us. So Adam lived, Noah lived, uh, who? Abraham lived. Isaac lived, Jacob lived. There were no Ten Commandments. There were no, there were no sundry laws. But they lived, isn't it? They lived. So have you ever imagined the kind of law they lived under? If there were no written laws under that, in that dispensation, what was the guiding principle? Of course. It's not far-fetched that the law was written in their hearts. There's a way God communicates his law to them that were not clearly written to us in the scripture, but we know there was the law written in their hearts. 
It's just that the farther, the farther we move away from Eden, the worse we become. When we fell in Eden, we were bad enough, but not too bad. It's like, so from Eden, we're moving farther, farther, farther away from God. And the capacity of human beings to commit sin become more sophisticated. I hope you understand that. That from primitive committal of sin to an engineered and modified and cleverly devised means of committing all kinds of immorality and sin, the farther we move away from Eden, the farther we move away from this consciousness of the law as inscribed in our heart naturally. We are built to understand God by nature. It's just that sin had corrupted our heart. Church, are you following me? And on their way back from Egypt, having spent 430, and I think there was another year added, maybe cumulatively, it's about 470 or 80 in Egypt, they came out with Moses. Originally, God instructed Moses to bring them from Egypt to where? To where? To where? To where? To Sinai. So good. That's why I know you're not reading your Bible consecutively. He's to bring them to Sinai to worship him. He said, this is a sign. The day God spoke to me, he said, this is a sign. Bring them to Sinai to worship me. Of course, the obvious destination was Canaan, but uh, there was, uh, God said, bring them up here. It was in Sinai that God called Moses and said, okay, bring them here to this mountain, and I will speak to them. So between Egypt and Sinai, God was not speaking to them like in audibly, but there were signs and similitudes of things happening. But Moses managed, those guys were terrible, he managed and tried his best to ferry them down to Sinai. It's like, God, we have come. And God told them, to tell them to purify themselves. Three days, they should wash their clothes. That's where we get the theology of Sunday, uh, Sunday dress. Eh? So when you're coming to church on Sunday, you wash your eye on it. There are some Sunday clothes and Christmas clothes. and no, I mean, there are some clothes there. So they should wash their clothes. I used to reflect in my mind, why should wash their clothes? We think concern God and clothes that people wear. So they should wash their clothes. Dress fine. He said, because in three days, I'm coming down to speak to them. And he said, Moses, I want to speak to this congregation, speak to you, and speak to them collectively, corporately, so that the only thing that is Moses that is kind of cooking stories, I want them to know that I am. And then when they hear my voice, they will know that all these things is not just Moses and one spirit conjuring this movement. And he said, they should not sleep with their wives. I don't know how that, uh, 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 how that matters. And I think that's under theology of uh, Saturday night for those who are uh, married and those who are training to be pastors and pastors. I don't know. Uh, that just by the way. By the way. They should not sleep with their wives. So on the third day, God appeared. You see this story in the book of Exodus 19, 20. And then Moses was recounting this in Deuteronomy chapter 5. On the third day, they came to the mountain. You know, these guys never, they, 
fully. They didn't trust Moses fully. So they came to Sinai. They are ready. And God told them to put a barricade around the Mount Sinai. So they should, there's, there's limits as to where they could go. And guys, the mountain was shaken by itself. There was darkness on the mountain. And trumpets, sound, all kinds of weird. You know, I don't know if you've watched a Nigerian movie before. I said, then you know, one witchcraft wants to appear from nowhere. So they say, say, boy, Moses now, <laughs> this is the final finishing. <laughs> she didn't want to kill us. So they just said some sound and they drew back. I said, Moses, they said, Moses, you, you go. Now we have heard some voice. Yeah, God is with you. God is alive. We are not doubting God anymore. You go inside. Whatever God told you, come and tell us we will do. So they bargain with Moses. But the original intention of God is that these guys will come to Sinai and God will write his laws in their hearts. They will hear God speak to them and that, that become residence in their hearts. Of course, because of the stubbornness of their hearts, they miss that opportunity. And God promised Israel and that is the sentiment of Jeremiah 31, verse 33, uh, Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel uh, 36, and you see it in Hebrews 8 and also Hebrews um, 10, verse 16. Under the, the new covenant, I will write my laws in their hearts and in their mind. I will give them a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone, and I will give them the heart of flesh. And no one will teach his brother, come and know the Lord, because they will know me from the least to the greatest. Have you seen that scripture before? That's where I've read for you. So that, that is the, 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 the trajectory of the new covenant, that God will write his laws in the hearts of believers. And that has been the desire of God. So believers have come into a new covenant that is not precisely the same as the old covenants. So when you come through the door, the day you become a believer, there is no two tablets of stone given to you by the pastor and say, okay, these are the rules that you must keep to be saved. In fact, most of us were saved we don't even know how we became saved. Grace found us on the basis of Christ. So over time, a lot of issues have happened within the church, and there are words called antinomianism. How many of you have heard the word antinomianism? Raise your hand. Let me know if I, if I have good company. Antinomianism, smart, means that are this group of Christians looking at the testimony of the New Testament, say, okay, We've been freed from the law. We are not to keep the law again anymore. Law is gone. The Old Testament. In fact, there are some Christians that will not even look at the Old Testament at all. Say so we are New Testament um, believers. They, they couldn't see a relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, it's the law that is applicable now is the law of love. Just love your brothers, love yourself, love everybody. You don't have to keep anything, and then go on whatever you do with your life is of no consequence because we have been saved not on the basis of your obedience to the law and you are being saved not on the basis of your obedience to the law you are being saved exclusively by Christ 
And because your salvation is secured, does have dual security or multiple security, there's no way it could leak out of your hand. So you can go on and do what you like with your life. It is called antinomianism. Those who are against law. Law means nomos. Anti means against antinomos. Antinomianism are Christians who believe that grace has secured the, 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 the bowl of, of plates and you can go on and do what you like with yourself. But if you read the entire New Testament, we understand truly that we'll be saved freely by grace, by God, through the faith in Christ Jesus. And there's nothing we did for our salvation. And there's nothing actually we can do that will add to our salvation or to substantiate it. It is what it is. We'll be saved, justified, freely by grace. But there are commandments, there are imperatives, there are consequences of our new status with God. And that is where the book of Romans uh, comes into play. If you are in Romans chapter 7, that's what Paul is trying to explain to us. That, and I think, oh, that, what is happening to the sound? Okay. Oh. I understand. Now, and Paul was speaking to good leaders, speaking to the maybe a lot of Jews who are in the church, because he called them brothers, and he said he's speaking to those who knows the law. And he said because the other side of antinomianism is what legalism. So legalism say. Yes, Christ died, but you have to do something to qualify you to earn the benefit of that work that Christ did on the cross. So you must, there are codes that you must tick. And, and in the New Testament church, there were those who were called the Judaizers and the circumcisions who believed that Christ died, but the law of Moses is valid. You must keep it in order to enter church. Or now that you are in church, what keeps you in is your adherence to the law of Moses. It's called legalism. So Christian life is measured by your compliance to the law, like circumcision and the Ten Commandments and so forth and so forth. And Paul is writing to them that we are no longer under the law, now under the grace. And he's going to make explanation. The first thing Paul is saying in verse 1 is to use legal principle to underscore this point. The first principle is the principle of law versus those who live. Law is, is never for the dead. Law has no hold on the dead. Law applies only to the living, true or false. Whether it's the law of God or Nigerian law, for instance, Nigerian law, you commit murder, and then, or you commit treason, like some people that are being charged with treasonable felony and are in prison, are waiting trial. If they die in prison, what happened to that law? What happened? If I'm owing one million dollars, and then a jury sue me to court, say if you must pay me, you must pay me, you must pay me, criminal offense, and then I die. What happened to that case? Of course, so in some instances. If I have property that he can recover, <laughs> he can still go ahead and recover 
But for me, I will not enter Nigerian prison again, except they have to exhume my bones and, and bind it up in a sack and keep it in Nigerian prison. And I'll gladly be happy that every, what the, the dead person is, the law have no relationship to those who are dead. And what Romans 6 has been saying to Christians is that Christians are who? Dead. Christians are dead people. And according to John Stott, the, the phrase dead to sin and, and dead to the law are identical. That's why I read the whole of chapter 7 of Romans to see how Paul looked at law and sin. And there's a nexus between law and sin in, in, in relation to, 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 to us that are humans. And, and he said, death happened in our lives. Therefore, the law that we're under is no longer binding on us. Christians are dead, and they are no longer alive in a sense. I mean, spiritually. Uh, and then the law is no longer having holds on them. We are married to the law, and then the law, we are, we are now dead to the law. And Paul now went ahead to give some illustration about marriage. The law of Moses, not even just the law of Moses, the law of the land. If, uh, if a man dies or a woman dies, either party is free from the bond of marriage. There's no marriage for dead people. Of course, in some culture, if your husband dies, you must marry, you must, I think in some Indian culture, they bury the living. Don't pray that your husband will not die before you as a woman. If your husband died, sorry, they will bury you with a man uh, like that. But if the wife dies, they will not bury the man with, uh, with the wife. So, so. Don't ask me why. It is what it is. But the argument of Paul is that marriage is for life. Marriage is not for... Marriage is as long as both of you live. And he said, if a man is still alive, both of you are alive, and then a woman leave her husband's house and they're married to another man, he commits what? Adultery. So the law will have a hold on him. But in the case of death, and then the woman remarries, she is no longer called an adulteress. I don't know why Paul also used women, as he didn't say if the man dies. Then the woman, the man is, if the man dies, then the woman is, I don't know, I don't know why the woman is used here also, but of course, the, the church is the bride of her. So he now say, but we, we die. Guess what it, <laughs> some commentators will laugh. Now, if I, some commentators even say that Paul is crazy here, because Paul is saying, Paul didn't say the Lord dies, so that Christians can marry, believers now are married to Christ. Who died? Is it the Lord that dies or us? Who died? Is the Lord dead? Who died? Some people say Christ died. Look at verse 2, chapter 7 of Romans. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband. And let me just put a caveat. This is not, Paul is not teaching marriage law here. I hope you understand. I hope you understand. 
Paul is not teaching marriage. I know some denominations that rush here to capture the issue of the marriage. Paul is using an, using an illustration of marriage to teach about Christian relationship to the law. Verse 2. For a married woman is bound by a law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died. Who died? Who died? We die. And are we dead people married to a living man? No. We died. And what happened to us after we died? We were raised. We were made alive. And then the person who made us alive is now marrying us. And his name is who? Jesus Christ. So our death freed us from the law. And we are with Christ. But the question is, how did we die? How did we die? Verse 4. Brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Through the body of Christ. We, Galatians chapter 19, verse 20. Galatians chapter 2, sorry. Galatians chapter 2. There's no 19. Galatians chapter 2, verse 19. Galatians 2, verse... For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What the New Testament is saying, even also Romans chapter 6, is saying that we... Our union with Christ, we were united with Christ in his death. That when Christ was on the cross, elect, the elect were counted in him, were comprehended in him. We, those who have been saved were part of his death, spiritually stricken. So when Christ was hanging on the cross, all Christians were in him. So the punishment, so the punishment that Christ underwent on the cross is the the collective punishment. He took us into himself and our sins and all the baggages and liabilities that you've acquired from Adam, and then he nailed it to the cross. So we died with him. And the New Testament talks about we also being raised together with him. And he also spoke about we be seated also with him. So Christians are in union with Christ. It isn't that Christ died on our behalf per se. We died in him together. And Romans 6 is saying if we die, dead people 
do not commit iniquity. Dead people just die. And now that we are alive, we are alive by the Spirit. And we are in Christ. So we die through the body. He's talking about the physical body of Christ as he was being nailed to the cross. And the purpose of this death is that we may belong to another. And that another is Christ. Look at the passage before us. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. Previously, we belonged to a servant of sin, and the law came through and makes sin exceedingly sinful. The law make the law provoke the sinfulness in our lives, and the law was the law causes sin to become exceedingly sinful in us. I don't have time to go there. It's in Romans 7 I've read for you. So we are we're in bondage to sin and to Satan and consequently to the law. So we died and being released from the law so that we can belong to another. It wasn't the case of we being released from for instance, if you are released from Nigerian prison, where do you go? I know many of you have not served in prison before. How many of you have served a bit of Kujie prison? So the day of your release, where do you go? Okay, just assume that you need to. The day of your release, you finish your sentence, you finish your term, or the government came and release you, where would you go? Did the government tell you where to go? Huh? The, once you serve your sentence, and there was a day we were preaching in uh, Suleja prison, and it happens that they were releasing some, some, some guys. So they'll just call you, give you some clothes, some oversized clothes that are donated. Maybe give you like 5,000, depending on where you came from, they give you 5,000 naira, and then few ceremonies. You are led by the warder to the gate. They open the gate, and then for the first time you are out. It's even possible that when you are out from that Kujie prison, or where prison, you go to the park, and steal two telephones because you have learned skills in the prison. Yes, same day, same day. I'm going to do some pickpocket because you need to go home. And now, where do I go now? Some have done so bad that they can't even go back to their home. They can't even go back to their community. So they're not going to figure out, well, should I move to Lagos? Or let me go far away from where I used to be, change my name, change my identity. You are by yourself now. But that's not our situation. The guy that released us from the prison that we held took us to himself. Took us to himself. The same way some of you were evangelized and somebody became a Christian and then you are taking that person to yourself. That's a bad analogy, eh? but some of you uh, win souls for both Christ and, uh, and to yourself. But Christ released us and then brought us to himself. We are now his servants. We are now his bride. 
That is the first purpose. But the ultimate purpose, brothers, is not just to be done to crash nominally. The ultimate purpose is, is that we may bear fruit. Verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the Lord through the body of Christ, that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So we were released from the law so that, so that we belong to Christ, but much more than that, so that we can bear fruit. And that's where the, the, the idea of the law of God comes to play. What fruits, what fruits are we to bear? The Bible calls that fruit the fruit of righteousness. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. We used to bear fruit for death. Our intercourse with the law were, were unproductive at best. And whatever it is that we are producing through the law were fruits. The Bible called it the fruit for death. They were not producing the fruit that leads to everlasting life. They were producing useless fruits. Verses, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way by the spirits and not in the old way of the written code. So believers have been released from the law to belong to another and to bear fruits. And the fruits that we are bearing now, having, let me give this example, is this analogy of marriage also that is coming to play. Yes, of course, some people disagree with Poi, sunk here in, in a bit. It's like when we're, we're married to this man, we're not having children. But now you have a new husband, and then you're having children, inevitably. Because there is a, a, a strong and living relationship with Jesus that is causing believers to bear fruit for God. And this fruit bearing is what the compliance to the law, to the law of God that's where it comes in. And Jesus said, uh, a Pharisee came to him and said, what is the greatest uh, commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all of your hands, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So those who are like antinomians, run down and say, okay, yeah, as long as you love God, as long as you love God and you love your neighbor, you are fine. That's the same thing we are saying. How do you love God? What does it contain to love God? What it contains to love God is that you are not having another God. Eh? I do say I love my husband, I love my wife, and I have another wife somewhere. Is that love? So loving God means not having another God beside him. So he is the only object of your affection. 24 hours, God is the beauty that your eyes and affection beholds. Loving God now means what? Not to have another image carved. Loving God means what? To keep the Sabbath holy. Loving God means not to take his name in vain. Loving God now means what? And then love your neighbor means shall not commit adultery. If I love my neighbor, I will not take his wife. If I love my neighbor, I won't kill him. If I love my neighbor, I will not covet. If I love my neighbor, I will not bear false witness against my neighbor. You see how this thing plays out? Now that we are in Christ, the law now is not obeyed so we can end starvation. Is that 
by the functions that Christ performed on us by the Holy Spirit, we are now bearing the fruit by the Holy Spirit, and this fruit is we are loving God and we are loving our neighbors. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So the issue is, is as we close now, is if I claim to, uh, to, 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 to love God and I'm not obeying his commandments, I'm not loving him. Jesus said, it is those who love me, it's those who love me will obey. He said, if you love me, do what? If you love me, do what? Obey my commandments. Simple. That's our relationship. Our relationship is not, okay, let's keep the law so that God will look at the law and justify That was the first thing. And our forefathers failed. They could not keep the law. None of them. Even Abraham could not keep the law. Even David could not keep the law. And the law, according to Paul, was a schoolmaster that led us to Christ. So any fascination with the law is, 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 is actually stupid and foolish because the law could not produce anything. The law could not produce redemption. The law could not produce reconciliation to God. The law could not produce propitiation, could not appease God. Even right in the temple, where those animals were being burnt as an appeasement to God, priests were sleeping with women. And at one point, God said, take this offering out of my house. Say, this your weeping. is. I'm tired of your weeping and your sacrifices. And God brings his son, and his son perfectly fulfills the law on behalf of his people. Because we were comprehended in him. We were in view when he obeys the law. Christ is the only man that ever lived who obeyed God perfectly. And that, is, that obedience is called active obedience. And that active obedience is imputed to the believers, those who have come in contact with him and now in him. And his passive obedience in his death also were imputed to the believers and now we live a new life. And there's no way we will not obey the law. There's no way we will not love the Lord, our God, because we have new life, new disposition. We have been made alive. Turn to Psalm 119 as I close and look at the disposition of Christians. Psalm 119, verse 136. So as you can recite it of head, hopefully. Psalm 136. One second. 165. Talk about great peace. Have those who love your law. Just help me. There's a verse that says, How I love the Lord. Uh, how I love your law is a delight. To, uh, yeah? 97. Yes. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And then 165. Great peace have those who love your law. 
So the law, the law is alive. The law didn't die. We died so that we can have a good relationship with the law. No. I think it's Romans 8 that speak about the law was weakened by, by who? What makes, the, what makes the law ineffective? Is it the law in and of itself? Or, or us? Huh? Same analogy of married people. It takes two to tango. Huh? So, the law was good and holy. There's nothing wrong with the law. But something was wrong with us. That even if we liquefy the entire Godhead and infuse it into us, we will turn it into something else. When the law of God comes in contact with sinful people, it produces death. The new and leading way is that Christ come through and unite himself to sinners and regenerate them and give them the, Holy, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now they have a new disposition. So we are now ready to receive the law of God and do them and obey them. That's what happened. We were the problems, and it was us that Christ worked upon. Nothing happened to the law. It is us. The law was weakened. The law was ineffective because of our sinful nature. And now that Christ has come, we are born again, and we love the law of God. It's our meditation all day. The law of God is our peace. The only peace, the only reason why we, have, we can go to bed and sleep is that we are obeying God. A Christian cannot sleep if he's not obeying God. If a Christian sleeps in disobedience, he's not a Christian. A law, sin itself is called what? Lawlessness. That's the Thessalonians. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Righteousness and the grace of God in Christ Jesus is compliance to the law of God. We law, we are law keepers because we are in Christ. The way he keeps the law, we keep the law of God. Not that we might be saved. We keep the law as a result of being saved. It is our identity. It is the marker that we are possessed by the Holy Spirit. I don't know how to explain this. Are you following, are you following this church at this point? It's our marker. Like, uh, is there any place around town where dogs are being kept to learn how to bark? Hmm? One thing I discovered recently is that either Zambian dog or Nigerian dog or American dog, or UK dogs. Dogs are dogs. They like bones. Very few dogs will not like bones. Of course, there are some sports, hybrid, you know, some. I don't know your dog. I don't know the name of your black dog. But dogs are dogs, isn't it? At least the back. At least the back. At least there are some characteristics that are native to dogs. Oh, pigs are pigs. Goodness. I've seen some pigs 
in, in, in the West. Whether it's in the West too, or it's in the country, pigs. Pigs like, they don't like tiles. Like tiles. It's an issue of nature. So if you put a pig in an environment that is not piggly, the pig will not survive. So putting a sinner in the environment of the law of God was to kill a sinner. Is, the law of God is too heavy for a sinner to carry. So an attempt by the Old Testament saint to obey God outside the Holy Spirit was a weakness. An attempt by the Old Testament servant of God to obey the law of God without the mediatory power of, the, of, of, the, of Jesus Christ was a weakness. There was no mediator. It is like, I mean, the Kenji Dam is good and holy. Shiroro Dam is good and holy. But if the light, if, if the power generated from Shiroro Dam is transmitted directly into your room, both yourself and your house will not be alive. Is that the power is, there's nothing wrong with the power. Like when you touch the life wire and then you fall dead, what is wrong with the wire? What is wrong with the wire? Was the wire designed to kill you? Those who design electricity, NEPA, sorry. P, no, not P, is, what's the NEPA now? Is it ADC or PCN? Is it PCN or ADC, which one? Let's keep it NEPA. When NEPA was designed, was it designed to kill people? Let's design this light. Uh, he will give them power, but let it kill them. Is that a design? But does NEPA kill? Whose fault is? When NEPA kill you, whose fault? Whose fault? When you, when you embrace transformer because your brother left you and then you die, whose fault? Is it transformer or you? Assuming you have no blood inside your body, transformer will do nothing. There's something inside you that when you come in contact with life wire, like high tension, who kill you? Is it the life that, is it that that kill you or you kill yourself? I don't know. You, you die. So there was something in us that makes, makes the law of God repugnant and heavy and burdensome. So when you were being saved, when you were saved, that thing was taken away from you. It's called the heart of stone. And now you delight in the law of God. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walks not, but his delight. And in the law of God, he meditates how many times? So when I begin to teach next Sunday, the first commandment, I say, ah, this church, why are they taking us back to Moses? <laughs> if I hear that beam from you, with, uh, ushers will take you out of... Uh, Let me close with this meditate. meditate. How do you see the law of God? If you think you are a Christian, do you think the law of God is burdensome? Say, take my yoke upon yourself. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
If you are a sinner, the law of God will kill you. When you sit under preaching, it's either the preaching is making you alive or it's killing you. Hypocrites. The law of God is poison. The law of God is deadly. As you sit under it again and again and expose yourself, it's like you're under a radiation. Sooner or later, you will wither out. As the Spirit of God blows on you, you are grass. It is the word of God that abides forever. It is you who dwell the word of the Lord that abides forever. How is my relationship with the law of God? Do I love it? Or am I just taking the box? I don't make God kill you. Pastor say, God they kill people. I don't make God kill you. How do you look at your neighbor who say, I don't have Nepa in my house because Nepa kill people? How will you respond to that person? I bet me I don't connect Nepa. And, and there are some of you that don't even use gas in your house. They say gas kill, uh, kill people, kill Achagba, uh, uh, somewhere in, uh, somewhere else. So we know they use gas. So we use kerosene. But they would prefer firewood. But firewood also has killed people. Kerosene also has <laughs> killed people. How is your relationship with the Lord? And may God grant us this grace to love his law, to, to, to be made conformable to the image of Christ, that our community is known by those who love the law of God, not as force. No, they don't make us drink. They don't make us carry women. They don't make us uh, go to party. It's not us. It is the devil inside your head that is making us to, making the pastor look bad. Why is pastor preaching like that? Who only pass? He, they talk as if, you know, they do. It's the devil. You need deliverance. And deliverance begins from the day you give your life to Christ. Some of you even want an easy way out of this issue. You know, you are struggling with obeying God. You are, you are encumbered with issues. Instead of coming to the cross of salvation, you now go to a deliverance minister. Say, yeah, you have spiritual husband. And then you are listening to that the freeze. You are looking for an easy way out. You say, no, people say, I know that the freeze is a pastor. How, how on earth can that the freeze be your pastor? How? 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 Because you, you want so, and then I go to this pastor, say, okay, if I lay my hands on you, there are generational causes. You know? Spirit of prostitution. Spirit of uh, what? Of uh, stealing. Spirit of uh, lying. Klepto. Spirit of this, spirit of that. And then you you fail. Like, bring him up again, and then you fail. Oh, bring him up again, and then you fail. So okay, now you are free. And then, a week later, the dog is back to his vomit. The dog is a dog. I can guarantee if you take your dog to the U.S. for five months without no anything, take that dog back to Lantang, he's back. He's back. He's back. He's back. Father, let this speak to us as we go home tonight, very personally, deeply. And if you're not yet saved and we've been playing around you, cause that real saving faith may find us, so our disposition might be that we love your law and enjoy peace that comes from obedience to your commandments. 
In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.